Over the last seven months, we saw Russian gas exports or the lack of sufficient Russian gas exports trigger a significant price increase in Europe. Russia has market power today, has had market power for the last you know, 20, 30, 40 years. It doesn't need Nord Stream 2 to have market power in Europe. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, Program Director Joseph Mikett talks with our colleagues Ben Cahill and Nico Safos about the growing tensions between Ukraine and Russia, focusing on the energy security dynamics. Recent developments have set the energy markets on edge with concerns about possible major oil and gas disruptions, sending up energy prices and renewing a conversation around European energy security and global markets. I'll turn it over to Joseph now for this conversation with Ben and Nikos. Today, we're going to have a special discussion featuring a pair of my colleagues who've been doing a lot of work uh, and analysis on the energy security implications of a potential conflict between Ukraine and Russia. I want to talk a little bit about how considerations of energy security and the geopolitics of energy both influence the ability to avert a potential conflict as well as may fall victim to conflict if one arises. So I, I'm very happy to be joined today by my colleagues, Ben Cahill and Nico Safos, both written extensively on this issue for our website, and to be able to learn a little bit from them along with our audience. Nikos, I'd like to start with you. It's no secret that for a U.S. policy audience that Europe is heavily reliant on Russia for energy supply, in particular natural gas. Europe's also faced over the last few months very high energy prices because of challenges in its gas market. So as you think about a potential conflict, before we get to what its implications may be, where should we baseline our view of the status of energy security in Europe? And where do our European allies start? Where are they at the moment in terms of uh, access to gas? Well, thank you, Joseph, for organizing this. Obviously, the implications on gas are very different than the implications on oil. And, and Ben is going to talk about oil. But the backdrop here is that we are faced with an incredibly tight gas market in Europe. Prices are very high. They've come down from where they were in the end of 2021. But by any historical standard, they're extremely high, You know, more than twice as high as the previous all-time peak. The volume of gas in European storage, by contrast, or, or actually tied to the high prices, is very low. Uh, storage is about less than 40% full. Usually at this time of the year, it's 50 to 70% full. So, you know, you're starting before we even get to the reality of a conflict with incredibly high prices and not a great buffer to withstand a shock. And the reality is that on the one hand, Europe has made tremendous progress in both diversifying its energy system and building up its defenses, becoming more secure and resilient. All these things are true. At the same time, in 2021, you know, over 40% of the European Union's gas supplies came from Russia, right? So you have to start from a really tight and difficult gas market. Europe probably better prepared than ever to deal with a disruption coming from Russia, but still incredibly high levels of dependence on Russia that gives you very little room to maneuver. Right. If you start talking about, can you live without this gas? Answer is no. You can wiggle around and, and add finer points to it, but that's just the starting point of how Europeans are looking at the energy aspects of this crisis. 
And from what you've been watching or what you're seeing, what are the boundaries of concern about energy security and a potential conflict? And what might our European peers be willing to do to, one, avert conflict and, get, and, and ensure energy security, or two, what may they need to do to ensure access to gas in the event that the tensions continue to escalate? Yeah, well, I think you have a number of elements here that are worth pointing out. You know, when you think about what could happen, you know, you have it on the two extremes, you may have a disruption of gas flows through Ukraine in the event of a conflict. And on the other extreme, you may have a, just an outright stop of Russian gas exports. I would say the first, a disruption of gas flows through Ukraine is, is going to be painful but manageable. The all-out cutoff of Russian gas to Europe would be catastrophic and, and impossible to replace. I would say that not a lot of people in Europe think that gas would be cut off wholesale from Russia. Um, so even though it's the most catastrophic scenario, I don't think anyone in Europe takes it particularly seriously. The reason is that this would just be like an enormous escalation on behalf of Russia. It would affect corridors that have nothing to do with Ukraine. So we would be talking about Russia shutting off gas through Nord Stream to Germany, while at the same time trying to convince Germany to approve Nord Stream 2. Doesn't sound incredibly likely. It would probably be a fast way to unite everyone in Europe against Russia. So the math in energy terms gets extremely difficult if you try to replace all Russian gas in Europe. It's impossible. Uh, we're talking about sort of rationing, almost kind of wartime conditions. But no one is really worried about that. What the Europeans are worried about is, you know, could there be a disruption that interrupts the gas flow to Ukraine? The backdrop there is that the role of Ukraine has diminished significantly over the last 20, 25 years. Less than a quarter of the gas that Russia sends to Europe crosses Ukraine. The countries affected are fewer. It's primarily Italy, Austria, Slovakia, Ukraine itself. And in that case, the existing mechanisms for accessing liquefied natural gas, accessing storage, moving the gas around are probably sort of adequate for weathering a conflict of this of this nature. Again, with a caveat, we have no idea what conflict we're talking about. We have no idea when it happens, how long it happens. Now, the final thing I'll say is, you know, I think there's a tendency in Washington to view the dependence, the fact of Europe's dependence on Russia as a major inhibitor in European foreign policy towards Russia. If I can simplify, the view is, if only Europe didn't import so much Russian gas, they would be willing to do, and then you insert whatever you want to insert. And having spent a good chunk of my life in Europe, I don't think that's an accurate representation of where Europe is. I think it's just as plausible to say that the amount of gas that different countries like Italy or Germany, how much they import from Russia is a function of their foreign policy rather than the other way around, right? So I think what we observe as a constraint on European action is not so much that it depends on Russia and Russian gas, is the fact that they have a different view of how we, the West, and how Europe in particular should be dealing with Russia. They have a sense of the inevitability of the interdependence with Russia. And so that changes a lot how you think about the conflict and what's possible and what you're worried about than maybe what a US audience would be looking at. So here on the US side of things, 
I think you're right that European dependence on Russian energy supply, I think in particular gas, is seen as giving Putin too much power, makes uh, Europe too risk averse in, in dealing with potential Russian aggression. And we've seen moves from policymakers to try and avert that, not just over in the last few months, but like over the last decade, right? Nord Stream 2 is the key example. The Senate voted on a bill earlier in, in January 2022 to create sanctions around that pipeline. The State Department, even in the last week here at the start of February in 2022, has said, if Russia invades Ukraine, we don't expect to see this pipeline uh, operate. You know, help me understand, has political energy on that piece of infrastructure just sort of precipitated because it's the one that's not running yet? Or is there a big market or economic effect that you'd expect to see from that pipeline? So like, from a start, for, for somebody who's listening to our podcast who isn't deep in gas markets, what's the 30-second description of Nord Stream 2 and its status? And what are the potential market effects of if it's you know turned on, turned off, if it supplies gas or if it doesn't, let's say over the next year? For the past 25 years, Russia has tried to diversify the routes by which it sends gas to Europe from a heavy dependence on Ukraine to low dependence all the way in an ideal Russian world to zero. You could describe Nord Stream 2 as the final nail on that coffin, right? It is the final pipeline that would finally allow Russia to largely be able to supply the European market without having to depend on Ukraine, even though most likely they would still use Ukraine. So in the grand scheme of things, this is a question of routes. How does the gas get from Russia to Europe? If the pipeline exists, which has been constructed, it doesn't have a permit from the German regulators to operate, then you would expect the gas that now goes to Ukraine to go through Nord Stream 2. If the pipeline is not allowed to operate, the gas will still go through Ukraine. So in overall terms, we're not talking about Russia acquiring this great new leverage. Uh, it definitely, the pipeline hurts Ukraine because Ukraine makes money transporting the gas and Ukraine accesses this gas for its own use. But my general view is over the last seven months, we saw Russian gas exports or the lack of sufficient Russian gas exports trigger a significant price increase in Europe. Russia has market power today, has had market power for the last you know, 20, 30, 40 years. It doesn't need Nord Stream 2 to have market power in Europe. So if, I'm, if you're looking purely from an energy perspective, I don't think this pipeline is terribly significant in trying to figure out what the price of gas is, and what it means for European consumers. It has though become a political lightning rod because it's a flashy thing. It, has, it doesn't operate yet, it's easier to target. And frankly, you know, there's been a, a view in Washington going back to the Kennedy administration that the trade in, in energy between Europe and the Soviet Union or Russia is bad news, right? So successive administrations have tried to stop it, sometimes overtly, sometimes diplomatically, and so what I see is a very long-standing view that goes back decade, just articulated in the specifics of the day and the politics of the day and the mechanics of the day, but really long-standing position. The current iteration is Nord Stream 2, but it's not because of Nord Stream 2, it's just where we channel our energies. A final question before we turn to, to Ben and talk a little bit about oil. What do you make of that assessment? If if a conflict were to break out, if Russia were to invade, do you think Germany would uh, be willing to take action against this pipeline? Uh, and would that cause Russia any heartache? 
It's very hard to know how Germany is going to react, in part because we have a new administration and a new coalition in Germany that hasn't really been tested. And so, you know, when you have a new administration that faces a foreign policy crisis, you're not, you're not quite sure, you know, how they're going to try to establish themselves. So I think that's a big unknown. Uh, Germany so far has refused to really sort of make Nord Stream 2 part of the target. They've suggested that everything's on the table because when you're trying to deter an adversary, the, the worst thing you can do is communicate what you're not going to do, right? So keeping things on the table is prudent sort of uh, deterrence strategy. You know, in the, in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, this pipeline has become such a symbol that if you told me tomorrow, you know, this pipeline is, is canceled, which is kind of a weird word for it because it's there, right? So can't really be canceled. Um, if you tell me that it's not going to operate ever, you know, that would be, I would say like a reputational loss for, for Russia that they've kind of like really staked a little bit on this pipeline. And so it would definitely like frustrate them and annoy them. It doesn't in any way change the realities of what Russia can do in the European market. So my sense is that if Germany were to go after Nord Stream 2, the main significance of that move would be it would be an indication that Germany's fed up and has had enough. And they're willing to sort of go after this major sort of pipeline. Uh, and so it would be a bigger signal, I think, of a shift in German foreign policy than it would be a shift in energy markets and energy dynamics. So that's what I'm looking at, not so much about you know what my price expectation is for the next year, but what does it signal about the overall posture? You know, a lot of the trade between Western Europe at the time and the Soviet Union emerged during the Cold War as what we would call today like a confidence building measure, right? It was like, if we trade, if we talk to one another, if we create linkages, that would be good for averting conflict. Again, you're talking about a period of time, just like 20, 25 years after the Second World War. So, you know, that has shaped sort of German foreign policy towards Russia and Russian energy for a long time. If you were to say, oh, we're going to stop this pipeline, it would signal sort of a break from like decades of foreign policy tradition. And that would be meaningful. There are a lot of other levers that Europe and Western governments might think about using or sort of indicating they would use in the event of a conflict to, to deter Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, and we've seen a wide variety of tools, including you know, fairly restrictive sanctions on Russia as an oil exporter. So Ben, I, I'd appreciate your thoughts, uh, similar to how we started with Nikos, like what is the oil market thinking about this challenge at the moment? What, where are we starting from? And then we can dive a little bit into what tools may be available to Western governments. Well, we have a pretty tight oil market this winter. It's a market that is already attuned to issues like supply disruptions and outages. The supply demand balance looks pretty tight over the coming months. And in this kind of tight market, people start to pay attention to geopolitical risk and, and supply risks. And Russia is not your ordinary oil exporter. Um, this is one of the big three oil producers of the world, along with Saudi Arabia. In the United States, uh, it's a key exporter of both crude and refined products to Europe uh, and also a major exporter to Asia. And so the scale of Russian oil and gas exports is so big that any prospect of supply disruptions, even it's remote, you know, has people on edge. And I think the backdrop here is, is pretty important. You know, we're coming off uh, a fall into winter period where we've had a pretty rapid run up in oil prices. Uh, as we record this today, both Brent and WTI, which is the key U.S. benchmark, are Bumping around close to $90 a barrel. This is a market that is in backwardation, which means, you know, that's 
The prices for prompt delivery of crude exceed the futures prices. That's a sign of a tight market. It means that there's you know, incentives to use that oil now and not store it for the future. This is the kind of stuff that leaves market participants a little bit worried about tightness. And in the last couple of months, we've had a lot of attention paid to issues like low oil inventories around the world. You know, if you look at the OECD countries or the rich countries of the world where we have much better transparency about oil inventories, they're quite low. You know, where we are today is well below the five-year average um, for the last five years and also for the pre-COVID period. So inventories are low. There's been a, a lot of focus on spare capacity. You know, the more that uh, OPEC plus adds into the market each month, the lower that spare capacity is getting and the more limited the buffer to prevent the market from overreacting to supply shocks. And there's a lot of concerns and questions, I think, about OPEC underperformance. You know, every month, OPEC is putting much less on the market than its monthly additions suggest. So they're supposed to add 400,000 barrels a day to the market each month. Everyone knows they're underperforming. In recent months, it's been more like 250,000 barrels a day. So there are big questions in the market, not just about inventories and spare capacity, but about, you know, what would happen if in the event of a major disruption uh, or a major sanctions uh, cycle, you know, can OPEC step up, can other suppliers step up and, and fill the gap? And I think a lot of people in the market are quite worried about that. Uh, give us a picture of the downstream market effects, right? So market's really tight. What are the potential sanctions that, that Western governments could conceive of implementing, you know, even, even if it seems politically unlikely? And, and help us get a sense of like, what does the market look like if they were to be implemented? Yeah, but I think the starting point here is uh, maybe a quick overview of Russian exports. So last year, Russia exported about 2.6 million barrels a day to Europe. That's both through pipelines and uh, through seaborne exports. Um, the major pipeline system is the Jerusalem pipeline. There are two arms of that. The northern uh, branch of that pipeline goes through Belarus and reaches Germany and Poland. Uh, and the southern branch transits directly through Ukraine and then uh, goes to other countries like Slovakia and Hungary. So you've got a number of countries with refineries that are really dependent on crude that goes through that pipeline system, through the Jerusalem pipeline. And frankly, they just don't have a lot of great options. You know, in the event of a big disruption to Ural's crude, which is you know the main export blend that goes through that system. You know, if you're a coastal refinery, you probably have more options. Other refineries that are really dependent on Ural's would have a tougher time. And another important note here is that Russia exports a lot of refined products to Europe as well, diesel and other products. And you have a number of... Um, markets in, in Europe that are really quite dependent on the supplies from Russia. So what we've seen in recent days is that, you know, people who typically buy euros seem to be getting a little bit nervous. You know, the market today reflects uh, delivery starting in March. You know, in the event of sanctions, that's the period where things could get sticky. And so what we've seen is a little bit of a sell-off of euros and people in the market starting to look for potential alternatives. Um, euros, the main export one that goes to Europe is, is a medium sour crude. So there are some alternatives that you can get from places like the Middle East or from Norway, uh, maybe from West Africa. But because this is a tight market, you know, there's not a whole lot of oil sitting around. And so refiners would have to bid up that oil and it'd be a little bit hard to locate. So, you know, people are a little bit jittery about where the replacements might come from. And it's clear that, you know, in this kind of market, they just don't have great options. Russia is also a major exporter to Asia via the, you know, the ESPO pipeline, uh, which runs to China and through seaborne exports. So this is not just a European picture, it's also a global picture. And of course, the reality is, you know, unlike the gas market, we have countries that are really linked directly to Russia through pipelines. You know, the global crude market is, is much more liquid. Sorry for a bad pun, but you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and it, it's interconnected. So, you know, you may not be as dependent on 
barrels from Russia. But, you know, any disruption involving one of the major exporters in the world is going to affect the whole market. So help us understand a little bit where you think uh, the Biden administration is at and what considerations they may be facing as energy sanctions or, or broader sanctions might be in their quiver uh, of diplomatic and or tools to put pressure on Russia. Oil markets are super tight. The president has been trying to manage political tensions around the price of gasoline here for the last uh, four or six months. They had to get creative with SPR releases. What do you think is in the realm of the possible and what considerations might the White House be thinking about, you know, both internationally and domestically? I think the sanctions that would hit Russia the hardest are sanctions that would directly target Russian crude or product exports. Those would have the largest economic impact, but of course, they're the most risky. And those would raise real concerns about energy security in Europe, but elsewhere as well. And clearly, there could be a big price impact. You know, a lot of banks and traders are excited about $100 oil. They see it right around the corner. It would certainly be looking at potentially shooting well above that if you had a big disruption of exports. So I don't think that's going to be the first option. I think there's obviously uh, a lot of wariness about that kind of impact. And so there's kind of a menu of options potentially that could affect the oil industry and affect the Russian economy, but maybe not escalate things so quickly. You know, you could have sanctions on Russian oil and gas companies or on their executives. You could try to freeze their assets. You could have sanctions that block their access to international banks or make it difficult for them to have transactions that are denominated in dollars uh, involving other jurisdictions. One thing the administration already talked about in the press briefing recently was trying to impose um, export controls that would hit the Russian economy. You know, they specifically talked in a briefing uh, recently about export controls that would kind of target you know, future growth areas and industries that would be important as Russia tries to diversify its economy and transition away from being so dependent on oil and gas things like aerospace and defense. But, you know, you could have a lot of export controls that affect oil and gas as well. You could try to make it difficult for oil field services companies to operate there. You could prevent the supply of equipment. Uh, those things would affect, you know, Russian oil and gas companies, uh, but also their joint venture partners. Seems like one of the challenges that I hear both from you, Ben, and, and from you, Nikos, is that sanctions or the interruption of, of energy trade because of a conflict or an attempt to deter one those that have the most maximum impact on Russia also have the most in maximum impact on either European or global markets. So for either of you, you know, is there some intermediate space here where you think either the US or, or European governments have to play, where they can kind of exert extra pressure on Russia to less harm to themselves? And what are you seeing governments doing to try and ablate the pain of energy sanctions or interruptions in trade on this side of things? Well, I think there's really going to be some daylight between attitudes in Washington and attitudes in Europe. I think the reality is that, as Nikos pointed out, some countries in Europe are just much more dependent on Russian energy exports. And so they have you know, more at stake. There's clearly been a lot of dialogue about uh, the potential to impose sanctions on Russian individuals, potentially individuals close to the Russian president, maybe asset freezes that would involve a lot of cooperation with European institutions, European banks. I'm sure a lot of that dialogue is going on. And then I think it's pretty clear that some European governments, from what I've heard, seem less comfortable with sanctions directly targeting energy exports. I think that makes policymakers in Germany and other countries uh, a little bit more nervous. And so that might be an option uh, that's available to policymakers if things really worsen, if you really have a downward spiral into conflict. But I certainly don't think it will be the first option. And I think that uh, it's one of those cases where there'll have to be a lot of dialogue between Washington and Brussels before we move down that path. 
Nikos, what's the gas side of that story? You know, we saw headlines this week of the president reaching out to Qatari government to try and, you know, see if he can shake out some LNG shipments to Europe. U.S. cargoes of LNG have been going into Europe at a pretty high rate recently. What do you think the options are there? Yeah, when I think about the strategic response, I, I think you're stuck between doing things that are too small or too big. That has sort of been the perennial dilemma in dealing with Russia, right? Either you can blow stuff up and you know have huge, huge detrimental effects on European energy security and on global markets, or you do things that are just you know so around the edges that they don't fundamentally shape Russian Russian behavior. So you know when I think of U.S. diplomacy of trying to find alternatives for Europe in case there's a disruption, you know, that's sort of pain management and pain relief around the edges. It's not fundamentally about allowing Europe to take a much stronger posture towards Russia, which I'm not quite sure many European countries want a much stronger posture towards Russia, at least not the way that a DC audience would would understand that posture. So I think you're stuck in this really difficult space of what to do. And the other thing that I certainly did not appreciate fully until I kind of like was digging into the data is, you know, I think there is, especially in Washington, this view that, you know, oil and gas is all the country has, you know, the late Senator McCain, what did he call Russia, gas station masquerading as a country, right? So, you know, the reality is that over the last two years, non-oil and gas exports have actually surpassed oil and gas exports for the first time in 20-something years, right? So the reality is also we have to understand that, you know, the Russian economy, you know, there's more stuff coming out of Russia as well. And a lot of this could still, still mineral, commodities, agriculture. So I wouldn't, it wouldn't pass high marks in terms of sophistication of products, but there's a more diversified economy there. So one of the things I've argued is that I think Western policymakers could really try to target Russia's role in a new in the new energy economy. That's you know sort of the way that folks squared the circle in 2014 after what happened in Crimea, which was to try to target the the growth, right? To say that we can't really stop Russia exporting oil and gas, but the Russians have certain aspirations about where they want to go. And we want to cripple their ability to get to those aspirations. And, you know, one can have a debate about how effective those were in shaping Russian behavior politically, but they clearly made a difference in energy terms. They were not the only thing, you know, lower oil prices did as much to kill, you know, Russian aspirations as the sanctions did. But there's specific cases where you can clearly see the impact of sanctions in, in affecting sort of what Russia was able to do. So one could imagine a broader approach on this that says, look, over the next 20 years, 30 years, the European market is going to change and Russia could be part of it or it could be left out. And this is not just about you know hydrocarbons, it's about hydrogen and ammonia, it's about you know batteries and wind. It's also you know low carbon steel and fertilizer and aluminum and a, a number of products that Russia makes. And so you know you have to ask yourself, you know, if Russia doesn't export all these products to Europe, what kind of country is it? And that gives, I think, the West a lot of leverage. And the good thing about that strategy is that you're not necessarily targeting existing 
flows, which are so difficult to disrupt. I mean, what, what Ben and I are both describing is the reality of interconnectedness that once you're so embedded in the system, you can't do much without huge disruption. So this is sort of targeting the growth, but it's not targeting, you know, like the Arctic, one element of the growth, like we did in 2014, you know, hitting the Arctic or, or unconventional hydrocarbons. This is really kind of going to the core of the ability of the Russian economy to just participate in a low carbon world. Right. So that that seems to me like fertile ground to sort of explore. And it's also an area where the US and the EU might find a little bit more alignment, especially given EU priorities of, of how they are thinking about trade policy and the energy transition. So as you watch the dialogue in Washington, there there's sort of a uh, we told you so tone to a lot of what US policymakers or strategists are thinking and terms of you know European dependence on on Russia for energy your point about what your Europe's overall or elements in Europe what their motivations are and, or desires are in terms of Russia is well taken but it seems to me you're sort of you're making the argument let's not make that mistake again right that the current energy infrastructure is what the current energy infrastructure is we also happen to know that Europe is planning to have a fairly different energy system even 10 years from now and and that skating to the where the puck may be, so to speak, is probably where we can create greater pressure. Yeah, and, and the key thing here, Joseph, that the reason I think this argument has potency is because, you know, I mean, you know this very well from the work we're doing here at CSIS, which is, you know, the hydrocarbon era follows a very simple logic: resource, wealth, and markets. Who has resource wealth? Who has markets? Those two things are connected. Right, that has been the irresistibility of the Soviet and Russian trade with Europe. They have hydrocarbons, Europe needs them. Well, you fast forward to the world of 2050, that's not how the system will be wired, right? It will depend on the ability to create innovation. It will depend on creative industrial structures that bring public and private actors together. It will depend on the ability of companies, including state-owned companies, to evolve and be repurposed to become new creatures. You know, Ben has written a lot about this and, and, and the role of national companies in the transition, right? So when you think about that world, it doesn't have the rigidity and the sort of deterministicness, I'm not even sure that's a word, of the hydrocarbon era, right? So therefore, it's more malleable. It's something that you can shape more clearly. Like, there's no reason a priori sitting here in 2022 to think that there should be a major hydrogen trade between Russia and Europe. And there could be, but there is no reason to think that this is inevitable in the way that maybe a gas trade has become inevitable over the last 60 years. Well, and in that case, like you really are talking about something which relies heavily on geography, right? Like the geology of where gas is, uh, is important, and and it's not clear that that's always going to be the same for a lot of these new technologies. That doesn't get you out of the fact that you have a lot of dependence now, right? So if there's a conflict, if there are sanctions, if there are market disruptions, that Europe feels the pain now, and you know the question is, is an immediate lever that could be quite harmful going to overpower a long-term lever? And so, you know, what's the role of the US, what's the role of Middle East LNG suppliers to create a little bit of diversity uh, of supply for Europe? 
can we make a big difference this year? Can we make a big difference three years from now? How do you think about that challenge? That's a really important and I think also difficult question in a number of ways, and I'm going to try to go through that very quickly. One, I think it's really important to go back to the core concept, which is that, you know, Europe right now in the first nine months of 2021 got 43% of its gas from Russia. You know, that number could be 35, could be 30, could be 25. It would still be impossible for Europe to offset the loss of Russian gas, right? So I think as we talk about progress, we also have to keep an eye out on the on the big on the big issue, which is that the level of dependence, even if you cut it in half, you would still not be in a position to be able to live without Russian gas. Right? The second, I think, contextual thing is an irony, which is that European LNG imports reached an all-time high in January. Right. So before a conflict, the system has already channeled a lot of LNG to Europe. So you're actually starting from a much higher base, which means that there's less flexibility because the flexibility has been eaten up already. There is less of spare capacity in the European system because the LNG is already showing up. So in some ways, the system has sort of rerouted the gas to Europe even before crisis. And so it's already allowing Europe to deal with the insufficiency of Russian gas. Gazprom just released some numbers showed a, a more than 40% decline in exports in January on a year-on-year -year basis. This is insane. Think about how high prices are. So the system is already helping Europe cope with what is a sharp reduction in Russian exports. It can't really cope with a wholesale outage. But what will happen is, you know, you'll see more LNG from the United States. The country has already shifted its flows towards Europe. Uh, you'll see LNG coming from other places. We've seen Egypt and other suppliers kind of shift their flows. Qatar is the one outlier. Still, 80% of Qatari LNG is going to Asia, right? That's going to change anyway because they send more gas during the winter time. But that's the one source of remaining flexibility in the system that you would really try to reroute if you were to make the balance, if you were to make the system balance and cope with the disruption. You know, so I think the role of diplomacy is to maybe communicate that, coordinate that, you know, to be very candid. The Qataris have been exporting gas for 25 years. They know how to read charts. They know how to make the most money for their gas. They don't need a tremendous amount of, of help to figure that out. But I think there's another crucial element of intra-European collaboration as well, right? That a lot of our disruption scenarios assume perfect partnership and collaboration and frictionless responses. And that's just not how the world works. So there's definitely a role for governments to step in and help. There's definitely a role for diplomacy to come in and, and communicate that supplies will be available, that certain measures could be taken to alleviate the pressure on Europe. But the reality is that no matter how you cut it, you're starting from a very difficult situation and a lot, not a lot of buffers. The, the reality is that you know, we talk a lot about diversification. We talk about the US being a big exporter of LNG. All these things are true. In a crisis, you don't care about diversification. You care about redundancy. You care about spare capacity. You care about things that are not being used that can be used. And the system does not have a lot of that. Right, so that's the reality of the energy security position of Europe is that there isn't gas that's just waiting to be produced in the event of a conflict. And that's what you really need to deal with the loss of supply.
Ben, do we have a do we have a solid analogy to the global oil market? Do we find ourselves in a relatively similar place? I think there are some similarities. I mean, as we mentioned, it's a relatively tight market. There's not a big shock absorber for you know big supply disruptions that limits the leverage to impose sanctions that would really cut off supplies to the market. I think what a lot of people are hoping is that we'll get through the next couple of months and the balances will start to loosen. And I think there's good reason to believe this, actually. The International Energy Agency forecasts that we're going to have quite a lot of non-OPEC production growth this year, about 1.8 million barrels. There's always a guessing game how much the shale sector in the United States is going to produce. Some people say 700,000 barrels a day. Some people say a million. It's pretty clear that we can ramp up quite a bit. You're also going to have oil coming online in countries like Canada and Brazil, a little bit from Guyana. So a lot of forecasters anticipate that, you know, by the second and third quarter, the market will start to loosen a little bit and inventories will build. And the positive side of that story is if we get through the next couple of months, and we don't have a major conflict or disruption, you know, things will start to ease up and look a little bit better. Uh, I think the situation is probably not as dire. And I think the reality is just, you know, there's a lot more liquidity in the global petroleum system. There's a little bit more redundancy. There's lots of intermediaries and people who can step up and provide those supplies. Uh, to refiners in Europe if they need them. Uh, it will be messy. It'll be ugly. It certainly could involve big run-ups uh, in prices, but there's a little bit more optionality. So just to close, what would be each of yours headline message for U.S. policymakers at this time? We want to keep Russia from violently invading Ukraine. In the event that Russia does, we want to maintain energy security both to for ourselves and the world. What should they be doing now, both for the global oil market as well as for gas markets, to try to minimize or, or mitigate the, the risks that we've talked about today? Maybe I can start. I think one bit of guidance might be be realistic about the sanctions impact and the sanctions trade-offs when you think about a situation like this. I agree with everything that Nico said about you know, the importance of thinking 10 years down the line um, and trying to you know, increase your leverage by denying Russia the ability to kind of diversify its economy and, and to change the trajectory. I think that's actually quite important. And that's kind of a creative way to think about things. I also think that it's important to draw the right lessons from the past. You know, if you think back to 2014, that was when we had the last major round of U.S. sanctions on, on Russia. Um, financial sector sanctions. And as Nikos mentioned, you know, at the time, the effort was to try to deny Russia the ability to develop sort of the next frontier set of resources, which at the time was Arctic, shale oil, you know, deep water. I, I'm worried that there's a little bit of overconfidence in how much impact those sanctions had on the Russian economy. You know, this is at a time when oil prices were cratering. Uh, Russian export revenues from oil fell quite a lot. I personally think that that had a bigger impact on the Russian economy and the currency and a bigger impact uh, via the devaluation of the ruble at the time than the sanctions did. So I think we just need to be realistic about how much leeway we have to impose sanctions and also the impact that they can have. The second thing I would add is that this situation of market tightness and a little you know, concern about, about potential supply shocks, it just reinforces the need that the world will continue to need oil and gas investment for some time, not just from the OPEC plus countries, uh, but also in the United States. I think with the situation in Europe, you know, that dramatic run up in gas and electricity prices in the fall, increased gasoline prices in the United States. Energy security has clearly come back to the fore. It's clear that price increases um, and inflation are top of mind for a lot of policymakers. And personally, I think that it would be a good time for the Biden administration to recalibrate some of its messages about oil and gas investment and say very clearly, we have a very ambitious long-term climate agenda. We're going to continue to push that forward. It's incredibly important. We're keenly focused on that. 
At the same time, we realized that, you know, in the near term, we're going to need continued investment in fossil fuels for some time. And there are a lot of reasons to do that at home, as opposed to relying on, on other countries. I don't think there's a contradiction there. I think there's a way to articulate that in a way that would reassure the market, reassure investors. And it doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice your long-term climate goals, but I think we should learn from what's happened in the last six months and ensure that we're preparing ourselves for the next few years. Yeah, I agree with what Ben said. Let me just add a, a couple of observations. I think one, this idea of trying to meet the Europeans where they are, you don't have to agree with them, right? But I think there's so often a foreign policy view in Washington that like, if only Germany were in Germany, this would be so easy, right? And I, I just don't know that that's incredibly helpful as a starting point for diplomacy, right? So I think that's that's one. I think the second thing is just a recognition of the interconnectedness of energy markets and the role that Russia plays and the limitation that this poses on the measures that you can take, right? So if I were to offer some advice is, you know, think a little bit more creatively about what you can do, right? I mean, the idea that Nord Stream 2 is the best lever we have for stopping an invasion of Ukraine, to me, is like just so sad, for lack of a better word, right? I mean, we have to have better ideas about how to shape the behavior of one of the largest, you know, geopolitical players in the world, right? I think there's a lot of good ideas around targeting sort of offshore wealth that Russians have and, and other elements on that on that front. Uh, and finally, I think the major lesson is, you know, we do have some very serious energy security challenges that we need to be talking about. Quite clear that the European gas market has gone through a lot over the last six, seven months, and we really need to be talking about what happened, why prices were so high, how do we build resilience, how do we build better buffers, how do we ensure that we don't, you know, in our focus to transition, totally abandon the existing system that we have and we don't look after it? I don't think that's what triggered this current crisis, but it means that, you know, just because you may think that in 2040 or 50, your energy system is going to look some, like something totally different, doesn't mean that you're not going to face a lot of bumps along that way and that you don't have an existing system that you need to manage. So, I think there is a crucial discussion to be had on energy security, resilience, on buffers, on the ability of the system to adjust. And as we go through that discussion, we have to also talk about, you know, as we said earlier, like what role do you want Russia to have in the future energy system? And start having conversations about that earlier and more honestly. You know, I, I do find that Russia's actions over the last six or seven months in the European energy market have alienated a lot of people that are normally positively disposed towards a Russian role in the energy system. I just kind of see a lot of people that I think of as sort of in the middle or sort of accepting of Russia's role in the European energy system have lost their patience by the total incoherence that's coming out of Moscow these days. And so I think that's an opportunity to talk about the future and what this relationship would look like uh, as we embark and scale up this energy transition. And so I would like to be talking more about that rather than Nord Stream 2. I appreciate so much you two sharing your expertise and giving so much of your time and effort to understanding this challenge. Thank you so much for your insights. 
Again, thanks to Joseph, Nikos, and Ben for helping to frame out the energy considerations at play in face of possible Russian aggression in the Ukraine. We've included a number of analysis pieces from our team in the description. In addition, CSIS scholars have been paying close attention to the situation in the Ukraine, examining the Russian political and military objectives uh, in face of a possible invasion in the Ukraine. We've included those as well. Look on the CSIS website for Crisis Crossroads Ukraine for a full listing of, of our work. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and on our website, CSIS.org. Follow us on Twitter for updates at CSIS Energy. And as always, thanks for listening. 